So we are starting now a, a bit of a series and messages regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is, brethren, of utmost importance to us in regards to what we believe and what we think, what we read, what we hear, uh, who Jesus Christ is in His nature, um, in His person, and what He did in His work on this earth are of utmost importance to us as Christians. We bear that name Christian, which is no doubt uh, as followers of Christ. So if we're going to know anything, we need to know who Christ is and what He has done for His people. So we're starting that. We're going to do three messages about the person of Jesus Christ, and then we're going to do three messages about the work of Jesus Christ, what He actually accomplished for us. So this is the first of those in regards to His person. Um, this week, we're going to deal with something that I think probably, out of all things of who Christ is in His person, is probably the least dealt with. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the humanity of Jesus. Um, so, I don't want to get too much ahead of myself here. So, let's just... I want to lay some groundwork for you. I have a, a bit of introduction before we really get to the main point that I want to look at. But here's where I want to start. John begins his gospel. In the, in the book of John, chapter 1, he begins his gospel. And he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to tell us that all things were made through him, that he is the light of the world, the light of men, which had come into the world, and the world did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, John says. And this big uh, sort of introduction to the gospel, this exaltation of Jesus Christ, I think really comes to a head in verse 14 of chapter 1, where John tells us that He, this is, as He had said before, the eternally existing Son of God, He became flesh and dwelt among us. And the words are startling, or at least they ought to be. He is actually saying, brethren, that the God of the universe, the one through whom all things exist, actually came, made himself human, and came to live and dwell amongst his own creation. This finds itself in no other religion, none other. There's no other religion where this is true. In fact, in every other religion, this is a blasphemous claim that God would come and live amongst his people. You tell a Muslim that not only God has a son, but that this God in this person of the son came in flesh to live on earth with his own creation. Blasphemous claim. This finds itself in no other religion but Christianity. And it is no doubt a core to the Christian belief, foundational to the Christian belief. And it's been the confession since the days of the apostles. 
We read it earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You may notice if you turned open there before or you've seen it before, most Bibles put that in sort of somewhat of a different form. The reason they're doing that is because the interpreters are recognizing that the language is a bit different than the language before it and after it. The language is is a bit poetic. It seems very clearly that the early church was actually saying that as a confession. That's what the early church would confess, and that's why we confess it. That's why we put it up on the screen um, every, every couple weeks or so. But that was the confession even in the days of the apostles. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, or probably better said, the reason we put it in the confession when we do it in the weeks that we confess it here, God was manifested in the flesh. You may have a note in your Bible that says there's discrepancy in the manuscripts of what exactly is said there, God or man. But I think it's, I think it's right to understand that, that God was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So that would have been the confession of the early church. God manifested in the flesh, and that's a weighty claim. This is a big claim, and we confess it right along with them. He, the eternal Son, who had always been with the Father, had come and was manifested in the flesh, a real, true human who lived and walked amongst his own creation. And so my intention is to display before you the true humanity of Jesus Christ. True human. And listen, I, I fear, this is why I think that this particular doctrine goes a bit under the, you know, under the radar, I think, in Christian circles, is that I fear there is a bit of a resurgence of an ancient heresy by the name of docetism. Now, the docetics believed that Jesus did not have a real body. They believed that he only appeared to have a real body, that he appeared to be physical, but wasn't actually physical. And this came out of a a sort of a bigger umbrella of heresy by the name of Gnosticism, which, I mean, to to pin down Gnosticism is like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's not super clear exactly what they believed, especially even... As it developed, you have Gnostics saying this, and then they're totally contradicting themselves, and then they're contradicting themselves again. So it's, it's a bit confusing there. But one of the things that was constant in Gnosticism is that the physical nature was evil. The idea that the physical was corrupt, that matter was evil, that began to bleed into the nature of Jesus Christ. And so these groups began to assert that not only was Jesus free from the physical nature of things in his birth and in his life, but also they needed to say that he was free from it in regards to his sufferings and his crucifixion. 
And so they began to assert that Jesus did not actually die. He wasn't actually crucified, but he only appeared to be crucified because he wasn't physical. And so how could a, how could a real physical death happen with a person that was not actually physical? And so they began to deny these, these basic claims that Christians had always believed. And the reason I think that this is creeping its way back, and I know that it seems like a heavy claim because it's like, wow, that like totally, that totally rejects the basis of what, what our hope is. We, if we don't have a real physical Christ and we don't have a real physical death and we don't have a real physical resurrection, well, then there's no hope at all for Christians. And, and it seems like a big claim to say that's working its way back in. But here's why I'm saying that. I think we have sought to defend the divinity of Jesus vigorously. And I'm not going to stand here and say that we have done it too much. I don't think we have. I don't think you can overstate the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. But I think what we have done is that we have emphasized very heavily the divinity of Jesus Christ, and rightly so, but we have not emphasized at the same time the humanity of Jesus Christ. And as a result, I think these docetic ideas are creeping in, which don't purposefully deny the humanity of Jesus like they did, but they fail to uphold it as of equal importance. And that's the point. Jesus is not God and a little bit man at times. He was divine, is divine. And he was and is still human forever. These are not two truths where we're looking at uh, 70-30. Okay, we're talking about the God-man, truly God, truly human. And when we tend to lean heavy on the divinity of Jesus, and we do not also uphold his humanity... Not only does it become not as important doctrine, but we actually become fearful to speak of Jesus Christ as a real, pure human being like the Bible does. And I think that has crept in, brethren. I think Christians are fearful to speak of Jesus Christ as a real man, a human being. Because our battle is not the same as the early church was. It's not. Our battle is often about the divinity of Jesus Christ. But early on in the life of the church, it wasn't really the case. The early church really did not have a lot of confusion about the divinity of Jesus. In fact, those, those uh, controversies really didn't come about until later in the life of the church. But the humanity of Jesus was a real point of contention for early Christians. And you see them battling back and forth with the false teachers and the heretics and, and, and Christian people arguing for this reality. For example, let me give you a couple of them. An, an early Christian pastor by the name of Ignatius, arguing around the year 100 or so, this is only maybe 20 or 30 years following the apostles, he writes to the church at Trails in Asia, and he says this, Be deaf. So he's telling them, don't listen. Be deaf, therefore, whenever anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was of the family of David, who was the son of Mary, who really was born, 
who both ate and drank, who really was persecuted under Pontius Pilate, who really was crucified and died, while those in heaven and on earth and under the earth looked on, who moreover really was raised from the dead when his father raised him up in the same way, His Father will likewise also raise up in Christ Jesus us who believe in Him. Apart from Him, we have no true life. So you see it. He's saying He he really was. He really was born. He really did suffer. He really did was crucified. He really was raised from the dead. It wasn't that He just seemed to be. And then you have... Similar statements from a contemporary of Ignatius about the same time by the name of Polycarp. He lays a pretty heavy hammer down. He says this, Everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. And whoever does not acknowledge the testimony of the cross, you see, he's dealing with this idea of the cross because they rejected the fact that he really was crucified. So whoever does not uh, acknowledge the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Whoever twists the sayings of the Lord to suit his own sinful desires and claims that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, well, that person is the firstborn of Satan. So no doubt these guys and others along with them were pulling these realities straight from the scripture. You get it in 1 John chapter 4, 2 John verse 7, John makes it clear. He who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is antichrist. That's John's words. He's basically telling them, if these people come to you, and he does tell them this in 2 John, if they come, if these people come to you and they don't have this teaching, don't even welcome them in your home. If they don't confess Jesus came in the flesh, they're not of you. They don't believe the same Jesus that you believe. So the early battle was waging over the humanity of Jesus, and they fought for that truth. But like I said earlier, our battle often tends to be a bit different. We deal with people in our day that want to demote Jesus. They don't want him to be divine. You deal with the Jesus in in Mormonism and the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness, and and they're bringing him down. We have to go to battle over the divinity of Jesus, and rightly so. When Jesus' divinity is in question, we need to battle for it. But often in theological battle, what can happen is the pendulum sits steady normally in a place of balance. But when you get a battle where someone begins to tug on that pendulum, you want to tug back at it, do we not? And so they're over here saying Jesus is not divine. And so we grab on that and we're pulling over this way. But it doesn't typically end up in a balanced position. It typically ends up swung a little bit over, a little bit skewed the other direction. And I think that what can happen and what has happened is that pendulum has swung a little bit past where I think we want it to be. I think we have defended the deity of Jesus vigorously, but we have not brought the same sort of fortitude and vigorous argumentation towards the humanity of Jesus. And because of this, 
Again, I don't think necessarily that many Christians are outright denying the humanity of Jesus as the Antichrist false prophets in John's day or the false teachers in Polycarp and Ignatius' day. But nevertheless, they have thought of, in the mind, thought of the humanity of Jesus as less important than the divinity of Jesus. And therefore, often fear creeps in of speaking of Jesus as a real human, one who lived as a human, who suffered as a human, who overcame temptation as a human, who even gained help and guidance and understanding and power from the Holy Spirit as a human being. So you might think, that's a heavy claim. That's a heavy claim to say that that is creeping its way back into the church. But I want to pose to you some thoughts. And I want you to consider whether or not even you have been infected to some degree by this creep of asceticism back in the church. Because I'll tell you what, I'll confess openly. I have no problem doing it. One of the reasons I wanted to preach this message, we were discussing what we were going to do in in the three messages in regards to Jesus' person and the messages in regards to his work. And I had told Aaron and Manny, there's a couple messages I've wanted to put together for years, and I could never seem to actually nail them down. And this was one of them. I've been trying to write something in regards to the humanity of Jesus for probably two years. And the reason I have is because about two years or so ago, I started listening to some guys that that were saying some stuff like this. They were talking about how it doesn't seem like the Christian church is emphasizing the reality of Jesus' humanity. And, And a couple messages really pointing at a point I'll get to later. And so I began to think about that. I began to read the scriptures. And I began to read with an eye saying, I want to see what does the Bible say about the humanity of Jesus. And I was very confronted in my own mind. Things that I would have never said, the Bible said quite plainly. And so even in my own self, I I was reading God's word and thinking, man, I don't, my own heart doesn't like to speak of the humanity of Jesus as God himself speaks of the humanity of Jesus. So let me lay this out, and I want you to think about some of this. What do we mean when we say that Jesus was and is truly human? Well, he was physically born, physically born, born by a natural human birth. This was not some supernatural event where he just poofed out of Mary. He was born physically. Real birth, real placenta, real blood. All of the things that come with birth. Real birth. Luke 2, 6 through 7. He was a a tiny baby and relied totally upon his mother for all things. We just had a baby and thinking, well, another one, I guess, but thinking of Jesus, the one who was eternally with the Father, now being, in a very real sense, a helpless baby without his mother 
would have died. Would have died. Reliant upon his mother for support. You see that in Psalm 22 verse 9. Certainly would have cried as a baby, was needy as a baby. You get these uh, Christian songs or these Christmas sort of songs. No crying in the manger he makes. That's garbage. It's just not biblical. There's no reason to think that that was the case. So he, he grew from a baby to a child to an adolescent. He grew. He learned things. He learned obedience to man and God more and more as he was given greater and greater responsibility from both. Never in disobedience. But a child who is two or three or four is not given the same responsibility as a 22, 23, 24-year-old. And Jesus would grow in that. Seems very likely that even as he would grow and he would learn from the Old Testament scriptures, that he came to learn and know more about what he was to accomplish as the Messiah. He comes in in the book of Luke, comes in to the synagogue, opens the scroll and reads it and says, Today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't do that when he's 12 or 13 or so earlier in the gospel of Luke in, in, the, in the temple when he goes up with his, with his family. He's actually in the temple there asking questions. You see, the, the, they're in, you read, there's uh, uh, Gnostic gospels which portray Jesus in this very unrealistic light. But the Gospels seem very real. Jesus is in the temple as a young child, and he's not preaching from the, from the you know, seat of Moses or what have you. He's there and he's asking questions. He's learning from the teachers and from the rabbis. And they're, they're, uh, they're astonished by his knowledge, no doubt. But he is there learning and growing. And then we see him at the start of his ministry, starting to say that he's fulfilling this ministry that was promised so long ago from the Messiah. And so he's learning this as he's growing and he's, he's reading the Old Testament scriptures. As a young man, he was subject to the law, if you will, of regular development. The Bible says in Luke 2.40 that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It says later in chapter 2, verse 52 of Luke, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew and he learned like every other human being would. His earthly ministry was one of him being exhausted. You can see that multiple times. He grew tired, John 4, 6. He became hungry, Matthew 4, 2. He was thirsty, John 19, 28. And he was subject, like you and I are, to the fallenness of creation. He didn't uh, bypass that being the Son of God. He came into a world that was broken and fallen, and he had to live in that world. He didn't have a bubble around him that meant he wasn't touched by any of the effects of the curse. He, he was subject, just like we are, to the fallenness of creation. 
how things don't work as they should, the emotional effects of sickness and death on others, hard work and sweat required in manual labor, possibly even getting sick himself, even though the New Testament doesn't really say it, and the brokenness of human relationships. He displayed quite clearly a wide range of emotions from weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, John chapter 11, verse 35, to righteous indignation at those buying and selling in the temple, Mark 11, 15 through 19. He became physically weak at times. We see him sleeping in a boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a sea. He's utterly reliant upon the Spirit for God, the Spirit of God, uh, in all that he did, Luke 2, 39 through 43. He went through every stage of humanity and was exemplary in every single one. And then finally, at the end, he dies a real death. He suffers excruciating pain and torment on the cross and in the moments leading up to that death. He's fearful in the garden, fearful of what he would experience in the following hours, such that he desires a different way. Mark 14, 33-36. But knowing that there is no other way, he nevertheless is submitted to the Father's will. And he dies a real death on a real cross, and his lifeless body is wrapped up and put into a tomb as any other human being's body would have been done in that day. And all of this as a result of the fact that he was truly human. And if all of this, brethren, to any degree, makes you feel uneasy to speak of Jesus Christ in those terms, or you feel some urge to say, yeah, but (laughs) there's a creeping reality of that docetic idea that to think of Jesus as a real human. Often Christians don't want to do that, brethren. And if that's the case, if this kind of language can make you feel uncomfortable, I want you to remember that Jesus' humanity is no less important than his divinity. It's not. Those realities of who Jesus was as a real man are of equal weight and importance to you as a Christian. And we're going to see why that is. So I don't want you to fail to see the humanity of Jesus as glorious. We have to bring these two things together. And the reality is the humanity and the divinity of Jesus being brought together in in unison is not an easy task. The church has been doing that since the start. Uh, We have councils and councils and and writings more than we could ever read of people dealing with humanity and divinity in one. Um, And and really, we stand on the the shoulders of giants who have dealt with these things for centuries. Um, Over the church, I'll do my best to, to show you the humanity of Jesus, and I want you to see that as a reality that the Scripture says ought to give you encouragement that you have, in fact, a high priest 
who was made like you are, so that he can sympathize with you in all things. And I will not this week do much in terms of balancing. Manny can balance us out next week when he deals with the divinity of Jesus. I want you to see his humanity. I want you to see Christ in that. So, all that introduction aside, I want, listen, we could have done this a number of ways. There are a number of things I think we could have dealt with in regards to Jesus' humanity, but I want to really spend our time on one particular doctrinal point. Um, and this really could have been its own sermon, but I think it fits well into what we're doing here. So we're going we're gonna to run with it. But I want to show you Jesus as the, as the quintessential Spirit-empowered man. Jesus as the Spirit-empowered man. And you might say, well, why does that matter, that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit? Well, I want you to see him in his daily life, walking by the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit, being upheld by the Spirit, so that you would be encouraged to live and to walk in the same way in your daily life. Listen, if you want to be like Christ, you need to see how Christ was and imitate. And I recognize that some can take this idea that Jesus lived and walked by the Spirit. He did what He did by the Spirit. And they can take that theological idea and they'll run with it over here and they'll tell you that you need to go and raise people from the dead and you need to go out and you need to stop the waves in the sea because Jesus did that. And I don't intend to make that claim, brethren. I intend to make this claim, that Jesus is the exemplary man, not Adam. He is the prototype and example of what mankind, men and women, ought to be. And that, brethren, was accomplished by the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person with undivided devotion to God the Father. Jesus is the singular example of a person living by the power of the Spirit without hindrance. And I want you to look at that example, and I want you desire, to desire what he had. I want you to desire what he had in his fellowship and prayer life and communion with the Father. I want you to desire what he had in the example of his life in going about doing good. You see that in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. says that Jesus went about doing good. His life is an unbroken series of good works and virtues in active obedience, not passive. He's not just sitting thinking, I'll do something good when it comes my way. But Jesus is in active exercise doing good things. And this, brethren, once again, proceeds from the same union with the Holy Spirit that you and I have. And I want you to see him in that light. And I want it to motivate you. So a couple things even laying the groundwork for that. We need to see why it was that he was empowered by the Spirit. Why was this necessary for the eternal Son of God? So go with me to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians 2, very familiar passage. Just going to read a couple verses here, starting in verse 6. Actually, let's go verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this speaks of Jesus having emptied himself. And we need to define here what is meant. Paul's point is that even though Jesus was in the form of God or was equal to God in nature and essence, he did not consider his equality with God something that needed to be relentlessly held on to as though it were something that could be lost or forgotten about. He didn't consider his divinity something that needed to be exercised in all places at all times so as to prove his worth and glory. Rather, it says, he emptied himself. So what exactly did he empty himself of? Well, listen, brethren, it is not possible for God to cease to be who he is. It's not possible for God to cease to be God. So what we recognize is that he emptied himself, not of his divinity in nature, but rather he emptied himself of his divine right as God. He emptied himself of his divine prerogative or birthright, if you will, which comes with being truly divine. So what is that divine right? Well, certainly it's what you find in the book of Revelation to receive all glory and honor and power and might from all creatures in all places at all times. That's what it is. And so what happens is our Lord, it says, set this aside. It says that he set it aside by, there's the key phrase. This is how he is setting it aside. He set it aside by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men and humbling himself. This is how he did it. Removed from him was all glory and shine that you might expect from the divine. Listen, Moses went up on the mountain, comes down, has to wear a veil on his face because his face shines just from meeting with God. But this is not the case for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah speaks about him like this. Isaiah chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. 
The world did not want to look on Jesus Christ. There was nothing spectacular about his humanity. He was not the most beautiful man in Palestine in the first century. He did not look very much different than any other person looked. He certainly didn't look like the garbage Jesus that you see in most television and most books. But he, he brethren, he had no glory. So I want you to imagine with me briefly. I want you to see this, and here's how I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine with me briefly a king. This king with intent and purpose plans to come and live amongst his kingdom, amongst his people, but he plans to come and live as a beggar. Now he's disguised, of course, so none of his subjects know that it's actually the king. But nevertheless, he leaves his throne room and he goes and, and assumes a seat with the beggars at his gate. He's still the king, but because of his decided purpose, he cannot live like the king. When he's hungry, Although he is the king, he cannot call ten servants to come and bring him whatever he wants. If he's robbed and beaten, he cannot call ten soldiers to come and take those people away and hang them in the town square. Although he is the king, he, for a purpose, he has relinquished his kingly rights. And this is the same for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he is, he always will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of the universe, but he came to live. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to be a servant, brethren. And just like this king in the, in the fake story here, did not cease to be king, but he set aside his kingly function for a beggarly one. And our Lord did not cease to be divine, but he set aside his divine function, his divine authority, and he assumed a human role. A real human role, one where he is subject, as you and I are, to all things human, yet without sin. And so then, having taken that place, having taken that role, he's emptied of all such things that we might expect the divine to carry around. And so this Jesus was a man who received guidance, help, teaching, empowerment, counsel, wisdom, strength, all from the Spirit of God. So I want you to see another passage of what is said about him. John chapter 3. Now you may have read this at some point and not attributed it to Jesus, but I'm going to show you why I think we need to. John chapter 3, look with me starting at verse 31. We'll read these verses for a second. He who comes from above, this, this is uh, 
You have John the Baptist speaking here, and then you also have John, the writer of the gospel, sort of giving some commentary interladen here in what's happening. So it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, I want us to focus in here for a moment on verse 34. You see it says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, I do not think that this particular verse is translated very well in most Bibles. Now, it's not that it's translated poorly because they're just not translating the Greek properly. They are translating the Greek properly, but just like it would be, um, anybody who knows another language, you know this, when you're translating across, a lot of times there are not words that are given in the, in the first language that need to be there in the second one so that it makes sense. If you don't do it that way, you just have very sort of just one word and one word and you have no real way of understanding how they fit together. And that's sort of how this sentence is in the Greek. I think it assumes a subject, but they don't add it in verse 34 in most translations. But there is one that I think helps a little bit. Do you, do you have King James? Yes. Okay, well, I want you to read verse 34 for me in that. Listen to this. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Okay, you hear this? So here's what it's saying. I'm going to read it to you again. I have it here. For he whom God hath sent, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll lay that out in a second, but I just want you to hear this. For he whom God hath sent, namely Jesus, speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure. So let me put it in the vernacular that we have here. He gives the Spirit without measure unto Him, namely Jesus. So now I want you to just note that unto Him is not in the original language of the text. I think the King James translators are taking some liberty and I think that's fine to do so in translation, but they're taking the liberty to add that subject so that you can see what is actually being said. The context is comparing and contrasting the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus is the one from above. John the Baptist is the one from the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is Jesus Christ. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. This is about Jesus. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Jesus says that over and over and over again, in, especially in the Gospel of John. If you hear my words, you have the Father. If you believe in me, you have the Father. If you, over and over again, Jesus is saying the same kind of thing. 
And so then we get in verse 34, he says it like this. He whom God has sent, namely Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And I think the idea is basically this is what's being said. That he, God the Father, gives him, that same Jesus, the Spirit without measure. And then he finishes his point by saying that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, the reason I'm saying that is this. I, I recognize this text to be saying that Jesus received the Spirit without measure. What that means is that it was in no way limited. Now, the Bible speaks differently, particularly Paul says that it's different for the Christian. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Ephesians 4, 7. So no one has the full abundance of the Spirit as Jesus did. We can be filled with the Spirit. We can be filled with the Spirit multiple times. You see that in the book of Acts. Every time you see that, you note what they're doing. They're proclaiming. So, says Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit did this. Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit did this. And then at later points, speaks of them being filled with the Spirit again. There's an outpouring of the Spirit. So that can happen in the life of a Christian. But Jesus, in, in contrast, was always full of the Holy Spirit. And He, as the one, it says here in John has been given all things into his hand, including the Spirit, then administers and distributes out that Spirit in measure to his people. In former times, the prophets were given a measure of the Spirit in their ministry, in their prophetic ministry. And the apostles in the times following Jesus were certainly endowed with great power by the Spirit. But all of these were in some degree partial and in measure, very different than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, in Him, the Spirit of God, dwelt fully and uninterrupted without measure. So, obviously, of course, being therefore infinitely full without measure of the Spirit, there are ways in which this man walked that you ought not and cannot expect yourself to walk. One example would be that he was completely sinless. But I want you to note something as we look at this passage in a minute. In all other ways, the Bible says Jesus was made as you are. The Bible gives us a singular caveat, brethren, in regards to the humanity of Jesus. And this is it. One singular cat. When you speak of how Jesus was a man and how it was that he was human, the Bible gives you one caveat, and that is that he was sinless. So I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 2. 
Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Here's what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, now notice this, he had, he had, the Bible puts a necessary condition. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, just look with me briefly also at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you notice he emphasizes the reality that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could make atonement for their sins. See, God laid down the rule. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. There's an accountability of life for life, man for man. And the punishment for man's sin must ultimately be carried by man. The animals through the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the Bible says in Hebrews, could not take away sin. It ultimately could not do it. Ultimately, man would have to deal with sin because it is man that sinned against God and therefore man must receive the punishment for his sin. And so he was made as you are so that he could stand in your place. Brethren, if you do not have a Jesus that is truly human in all respects, you do not have a Jesus that can save because he cannot stand in your place. That's what the Bible says. So it also says that he was made like us in every respect, yet without sin, so that he is able to sympathize with his 
people. He was tempted as you are. And listen, I want to clarify some stuff here because I think this can be confusing. I wish Sergio was here. I'd ask him to answer this question. I've probably asked him to answer this question about 40 times. Uh, But here's the reality. There are two, I want us to understand this. There are two ways in which we can be tempted. You can be tempted externally. I know that can be kind of confusing, but let me just flesh this out for a minute. You can be tempted externally, as though someone comes and tempts you. The devil can come and tempt you to do something. Or, as the book of James says, oftentimes we are enticed by our own desires. This is what I would call internal temptation. And so what I want you to understand is that Jesus was tempted from without. He was not tempted from within as though his own heart would desire sin. The devil, for example, came to him in the wilderness and tempted him to turn stones into bread. The devil tempted him to worship him and then he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. But what we see is that Jesus wins the battle every time with sin. It comes as a temptation and he wins. We do not see Jesus Christ battling internally with temptation. And this is important because I would ask you this. Is it sin to desire something sinful? It is, right? So to say that Jesus was internally tempted would be to say that he was sinning. So Jesus was not tempted internally, but he was, like you and I, tempted from, the, from externally, tempted to do things. And therefore, he is able to truly sympathize with you. He really is able. Brethren, get this. I know this is not my sermon, but this is the reality. Jesus is truly able to help you in your temptation. He is really able to do that. He really understands what it means to be tempted. If you're in a moment of temptation, Jesus is a real help to you. Don't just take that lightly, brethren. He says he is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. That's a reality. And so that we see that, that caveat. The Bible gives us that. Made like you in every respect, yet without sin. So the majority of Jesus' life then is a life that was lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see a summary of Jesus' life for us. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to read verses 34 through 40. And I want you to see how Jesus' life and ministry is summarized. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened. Now, here it is. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. I want you to especially notice verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the inspired by God testimony of what Jesus' life was. You get a similar thing earlier in Acts chapter 2. Go over there for a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So, I don't know about you, but that is not generally. Now, these are passages that I came to, I told you about that a couple years ago. These are passages that I came to that hit me like a train. Because that's not typically what I have heard. That's not typically what I was taught. I was typically taught that Jesus did what he did because he's God. That's why he did what he did. I was typically thought, be careful, in evaluating the life of Jesus because you may find him doing things and he's divine and you're not and you ought never, you know, enter yourself into that realm of evaluating Jesus' life with your own because you may end up trying to do things and you're not going to be able to do them because Jesus is God and you're not God. But I will tell you right now, and listen, that, that in part can be true. There's reality to that to some degree. We just looked at that in regards to Jesus' sinlessness. But it seems to me that the scriptural authors are trying to get you to understand and they want you to know that Jesus did what he did and his life was lived and walked and he accomplished what he accomplished, not because he was God, but because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's what the scriptures are saying in the book of Acts. That's what the scripture makes very plain to us. The authors are trying to get us to understand that. And listen, this is not meant to downplay the glory or the worth of Jesus Christ, but it is for you to recognize that your elder brother, Jesus, was made in every respect as you are. He was, in a very real sense, in his life on this earth, dependent upon the Spirit of God just as you are, Christian, 
just as you are, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be taught by the Spirit. And I want you to see an example of it. There's a number of examples we could have gone to, but I like this one. Luke chapter 6. I think this is a very encouraging one for us. I obviously don't have time to deal with a, a bunch of examples, but you'll see it here. And I think as you go through the Gospels, you will see this happening in the life of Jesus. So Luke chapter 6, let's just read verses 12 through 16. In, those, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. This is Jesus. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who, he call, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, there is a reality embedded here that I want you to get, and it's this. Jesus is about to choose the twelve apostles. These are those who would carry the message of Christ after he is gone. These are those who would speak on his behalf authoritatively. And so we might think if Jesus is going to choose those twelve... He's God. He's omniscient. Can he, he knows everything. Can he not just pick those who in his omniscience he can see and say, those would be the best candidates. I will pick them and move on. But it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work like that. And not only that, but he does not have a text in the Old Testament that says, pick these 12. There's no inspired list in the Old Testament of the 12 apostles that Jesus can just go to and say, oh, here we go. Let me just mark these down. Here you go, guys. This is what it says in the Old Testament, word for word. Here's what I do. Jesus is in need to make a decision. And it's a decision that will change the course of human history. And quite clearly, our Lord goes to God in prayer to make that decision. He is in need. He's calling upon God for the spirit of wisdom to choose the 12, no doubt. What's he doing all night in prayer before he picks the 12? Brethren, undoubtedly, he's calling upon God. He's calling for the help of the spirit, dependent upon the spirit. He looks to him for guidance and wisdom. Brethren, do we not find ourselves in situations like this where you are in, a, in need to make a decision and you do not have a thou shalt do this type of thing? Did we not deal with that as you were trying to figure out whether or not you ought to marry Nikki? And we said, well, the Bible doesn't say Sergio, marry Nikki. So what do we then do? We go to God in prayer. We seek wisdom from the Spirit. We seek guidance from Him. The Lord Jesus Christ's life is lived like that. He walks like that. Walks being led and guided by the Spirit, brethren. And here is a great example of it. And I want you to, to recognize that certainly uh, our Lord would have known as He read the Old Testament Scriptures that that is exactly what the Spirit would produce in Him. 
You see in Isaiah chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, but you can go back and look at it later, Isaiah chapter 11, specifically verses 1 through 3, but you get this idea that a branch, a shoot, is going to come forth from the stump of Jesse, this this line of David, and, and Jesus is going to come forth from that branch. And it says in verses 2 and 3 some characteristics of what the Spirit will produce in the life of this branch that's going to shoot out. It talks about the, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are fruits of the Spirit, if you will, that are produced in the life of Jesus as He constantly walks in obedience to the Spirit. As He is dependent upon the Spirit and never quenches the Spirit, He continues to walk in that. And the Spirit of God is leading and guiding Him as the quintessential Spirit-empowered man. And you get similar statements. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. You get this servant who's going to come. This is certainly the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the servant is speaking here. And he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning. He awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So day by day, Jesus would get up. He would go out early, it often says in the book of Luke. Go out early, but when no one else is there, go out early to pray. But when it was still dark, that's why I, I don't know, I don't know why it is necessarily, but Luke is probably my favorite gospel, and I think it's because the amount of times that you see Jesus going out and praying, getting alone and praying. But day by day, Jesus would would hear from the Father, be taught by the Spirit. He'd be shown what to do and where to go, and He never disobeyed. He was led by the Spirit, and always walked in obedience, never quenching the work of the Spirit in his own life. So all that to say this, I'll close with this. As we understand Jesus having been the exemplary, Spirit-empowered man, I want you to ask yourself the question, do you know the abiding presence of the Spirit in your own life. Brethren, do you want to follow Christ? Because here is how you do it. You must see that working of the Spirit in your life more and more. Do you see Him leading and guiding and teaching and helping and empowering you as He did for the man Christ Jesus? Are you living supernaturally, by faith and obedience. I'm not talking about walking out and poofing a car away. I'm talking about supernatural obedience to God. I'm talking about supernatural faith, faith that moves mountains. And I'm not talking about real physical mountains. I'm talking about tearing down demonic strongholds, brethren. Supernatural faith that sees the kingdom of God spread into the world. 
Are you seeing that? Are you living by that by the Spirit? Because Jesus gave us a promise in the book of Luke. He said to us that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? To those who ask Him. Ask, brethren, ask. Ask that God would grant you more of the Spirit, that you would be a Spirit-empowered man or woman, that you would follow Christ in that. Listen, this Jesus we believe in was truly human. And he made an unalterable decision when he came and dwelt among us in flesh. He is a man now forever. God is now a man. And he lived and walked amongst his people as a true man, a real human. His humanity, brethren, was earthly. It, it wasn't in some weird heavenly form. It was earthly like yours is. He didn't walk around as some superhero or superhuman. He was a real man. And I want you to believe this truth because this truth is so key to your salvation. Believe it and bank on it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray.